Hey guys, and welcome to episode 49 of Underrated, a show where we talk about great films that just don't get enough love. I'm your host, Gabriel Green, and I'm back, and I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. It's been three weeks. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. It feels like, well, it feels like three weeks. Uh, how are you? Pretty good. It's been way too long. Uh, so I went back to Virginia to visit my family, and I got to be uh, the first assistant camera on a uh, Liberty University student's thesis film. Um, you got to work with some really awesome equipment, including a red scarlet, and just a really fun, informative onset experience that I think that uh, I think will be really helpful for me. So I, I definitely enjoyed my trip, and I'm, I'm sorry we uh, missed uh, episode or two, but uh, it happens. Yeah, it was a. Uh... I mean, it was nice having to not worry about a, a specific schedule for a little bit, but yeah, I'm ready to get back talking about movies. Yeah, it does feel weird not having an episode to edit always hanging over my head. <laughs> but yeah, um, so today's your pick, James, and I'm guessing we have another real feel-good Walter Mitty type film this week. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a delight start to finish. Um, it's called Watchmen. So. I think everybody's probably familiar with that, and they know exactly just how much, how much fun and the the uplifting nature of this movie is, and yeah, very humanistic, you know. Yeah, it'll be a nice breezy episode. Mm-hmm. I right, uh, before we move on, I'd like to ask you guys if you enjoy the show to please take a moment out of your busy lives to rate and review us on iTunes, um, and also like us on Facebook. Uh, that would be very helpful. And before we move on to the main topic, have you seen any cool films that you want to mention? Uh, yeah. Um, I'll run through these pretty fast. I'm sure we'll actually have a probably a lengthy episode, so I won't spend too much time. But there are a couple I did want to mention, or more than a couple. Uh, so I watched Zodiac for the first time. And this may have just become, like, my favorite, like, investigation thriller movie ever. Um, I was just so impressed with every aspect of this movie. First, it's two hours and 40 minutes, and it feels like, I mean, it has, you know, it's three acts, but it feels like every act has its own three act. Like, it feels like there's so many different movies going on within a movie. Like, every single lead could have been its own movie, and it, I mean, it feels two hours and 40 minutes, but I mean that in a good way in which... I almost feel like I'm in the same headspace as the investigators. Was like, oh my gosh, this lead went nowhere. How much, like, how much longer is this investigation going to take? Who would like? It just it completely enveloped me in this whole story, um, and the the cast is fantastic. Fincher's direction is, as usual, pretty much perfection. Um, it was just such a great movie, and it's probably going to end up becoming one of my favorites. Yeah, um, it's interesting you mentioned the runtime, but even though it still moves really well, the editing is pretty stunning. Um, just how well it, the amount of information is constantly thrown at the screen, and I, I still have no idea how they stitch it together because that film has more scenes than like any other film I've ever seen. Just but they all just kind of keep flowing in this uh this hole that is really impressive. Yeah, it's it is weird because. Pacing isn't something that I would criticize it. Like I said, it's whenever I say it, it feels long, it's not in a negative way. It just feels like you you kind of you feel like the investigators do, or it just feels like such a long case, this tedious case, this process that feels like it's never going to end. And um, 
but yeah, it it never it never suffers from boredom though. I'm always interested, and I'm always willing. Like if you were to at any point say, "Oh, we've got this much more time left," I'd be like, "Okay, well, I'm in," because it's I'm still interested. So yeah, it's it might be my favorite Fincher. Uh, and then uh, another movie I had seen was I went out and saw the new It, um, which I was actually a really big fan of. Mm-hmm. It had it, you know, a lot of people. Yeah, it had it, which was I just want to talk about how much I enjoyed Bill Skarsgård in that movie. He had such a, like a weird zany manic energy to him that whole movie where he would he would go from just this gleeful smile to this random dead stare and then instantly back into some sort of chaotic monster it's such a such a weird performance and it really stood out from uh, tim curry as those I and mean, i think everybody kind of knew you weren't going to try to mimic that but just how different they were was really cool and then the they got a great cast with the uh the children uh i to, the banter sometimes was a little bit much but like Still, it, I felt like it still kind of captured the thing that we love about these kind of movies, whether it's Stranger Things or The Goonies or Super 8. Just, I mean, there's there's something about adventurous films set in the 80s with kids riding bikes down the street. It's just a, a fun genre. <laughs> um, and I was happy that they uh, ended up managing to get a good movie out of a King, uh, Stephen King adaptation because it's been so hard in the past. Yeah, um speaking of Bill Skarsgård, I I love just how other and foreign his performance was. It was so just wrong. Uh as but it, it was it was really really um captivating. I loved there was this weird cartoon physicality that they brought I like probably through a mixture of CGI and wire work. It just was like you just can't stop looking at the screen whenever he's on, when he's there. Um, I have. There are a lot of like flaws with the film. I think from pacing to direction to some of the characters, but it's very enjoyable. Like if you enjoy Stranger Things, the things that make Stranger Things so fun or, or uh, like Super or the other, you know, the the kind of films that it's a uh, uh, homaging. Is homaging the right word? I I, I always I, I drop yeah, the H. Ha, you have homage. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it captures all that, just, you know, the wonder and, and fun of childhood, but also this really creepy, hard R film with lots of crude jokes from really annoying little kids <laughs> that feel very real and possibly like some siblings that I won't name. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was very, uh, very flawed, but very enjoyable, I thought. Yeah, so I saw that and then... Immediately after, I was like, well, everybody always praises the Curry version, so let me go watch that. So for the first time, I watched the 1990s miniseries, and guys, stop being so protective of that, because it's really (laughs) not great at all. Um, Tim Curry is super fun to watch. I get why people love him. He's having a blast. He looks great in the part, Um, but he is about the only saving grace to that film, so... (laughs) Um, I think I'll skip that one. Yeah, I mean it's just though. How about how about pacing? This one just feels all over the place and weird, and 
I mean, we essentially have two different climaxes for both timelines, and they're both hugely anticlimactic. <laughs> um, acting ranges from, like, adequate to really terrible. It's enjoyable enough, but people need to not pretend it's a classic, because it's really not that great. And then lastly, uh, I watched Deep Blue Sea, and that was that was fun. <laughs> that was a kind of a lazy day. Um but someone had mentioned it on Feel and Film, I think, and it was on Netflix. I was like, I, I might as well watch it. I've seen the Samuel Jackson death about 500 times on YouTube, so I guess I'll get the context. And um, it's, it's Jurassic Park if it was a much worse movie with sharks. So, I mean, <laughs> it's pretty fun for what it is. Um, is that a recommendation or criticism? I'm not sure how to make oh, it's, that. Oh, it's both. It's not a great movie at all, but it's still fun to watch. All right. Um, so for me, I saw uh, a couple of films. Uh, American Assassin, the new spy thriller with uh, Dylan O'Brien, Michael Keaton, and Taylor Kitsch. Um, and it's fine, uh, which is really disappointing because I'm a, as you know, I'm a huge Dylan O'Brien fan and James should be too, but he's not. Uh, I don't see the star power. Um, and... The the film actually works because of its cast. I think Dylan O'Brien is just so watchable. Um, Michael Keaton is always great, and he can go a little crazy, which is always fun. And Taylor Kitsch is a guy I am always rooting for, even when sometimes his performance can be a little flawed. I think I always I think he's a very likable and uh, compelling presence. And I think even though his character is horrifically underwritten, I think he gives a really good performance here. Um, as a film. I like it's very competently made. The action is it's it's rated R, so the action is really brutal and it works really well. It's all it all flows nicely enough, but it just never amounts to anything. The script is completely shallow. The characters have no depth. There's no real nothing nothing really thought provoking behind it. Um, so it's just like yeah, action's fine, pacing is fine, stars are great. So you, it's it's watchable, but it doesn't really come to much. Uh, besides a couple impressive sequences. It's kind of what I was worried about based on the trailer. And I, I'm really wanting another great like action spy movie. Um, and it'd be cool. I mean, I love all of the spy thrillers that are ongoing, like Mission Impossible and 007 and things. But it, it'd be cool to get like these original ones. And I was hoping that this one was going to really be able to establish itself and be great. But I'll probably end up printing it. And I also saw Seven, speaking of Fincher... And while it's a perfect film, I hate life and never want to think about it again. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's rough. Yeah, honestly, that last line is the only thing that keeps me from losing my sanity. And even that line is, um, wow, it's yeah, it's a rough movie. But yeah, Fitcher's just—he's a great director, though. Yeah, it, it, it's impressive, but uh, man. Um, and then I, I saw Dunkirk again, and honestly, most of my criticisms that I had the first viewing kind of went away the second viewing. I think the his very unique editing style and choices, I think, became far more purposeful when you know how they're going to work together, and little character beats and moments kind of shine through a lot more once you when you know the end. I think it just works together to make this really brilliant experience of a film. Uh that is it, it it it's also you know it's pushing you know the bounds of what of editing and storytelling 
not in a way that, but not in a way that's just you know gimmicky, but I think that, that feels purposeful and was completely essential to the story he was trying to tell. Um, is it, I think you know, just the way he told the story is the only way he could have told all these stories in one film in a way that felt that was well paced and what didn't get wouldn't get bogged down and boring and disjointed. Um, and the way he you know, weaves together different thematic things like drowning or like being hunted between the different uh, storylines together t- uh, in the same sequence is really, really impressive. And then just the cin- the cinematography is incredible. I know we, we raved over uh, Hoyt Van Hoytma's work in, <clears throat> in Interstellar, and this is just as good. It, just an impressive piece of filmmaking. With And a lot of people criticized it for its, saying it had a lack of humanity. And I, de- I felt that the first time as well, but... He there is a way he taps into this kind of universal ex- human experience and humanism uh, that I think is really compelling. I mean, I I cried both times at various scenes. Just I think just how powerful the way he captures what it would feel like and you know how characters would how humans react to these kind of circumstances is incredible. Yeah, I remember getting to the ending of that movie. I was kind of feeling because I had. I had read reviews, and I usually try not to read reviews, but um, whether, I can't remember if it was, it was that I had read reviews or it was just I had already heard kind of the general consensus on it, that there was this lack of emotional connection to the characters and to the story. And um, I was almost kind of convinced of that all the way up until the end. And then whenever the end actually happens and I start tearing up, I'm like, I didn't realize that I cared about the movie as much as I did um, because I wouldn't have done that had I not been invested. Uh, I think it's just, it was, it's in a lot of ways, it's a very dry feeling movie and it, um, it's, it doesn't try to give you all of these courageous moments and all these acts of valor, even though they happen, everything just feels incredibly real. Um, and so it feels very different from everything else that I've seen. But then by the end of it, I still realized that because it all felt real, I did end up sympathizing and empathizing. Well, not <laughs> empathizing only to a certain extent with these characters and how real and human they all felt. So that when we do get to the ending, I'm like, oh, this, this did make me feel something. And I did connect with these people just in ways I didn't expect. Um, mm-hmm. And then just about his direction and the way he edited the story together and the way he told it. Something that I've always liked about Nolan is that every time he does unique and new things like this, he's always able to do it in ways that don't feel pretentious. And I just feel like that's (laughs) something worth noting because um, even in his most indie work like Memento, it doesn't ever feel like he's telling a story in a way that tries to make the movie like make itself feel smarter than you like look at how smart i am and he's he's telling a story in a unique way but trying to make it accessible to someone who's paying attention um he cares about his audience he doesn't want to feel smarter than his audience yeah that's why so many experimental films just leave no impact on me i think is because they are far more interested in you know doing this gimmick than actually telling a story that connects with Nolan, he always makes sure his the way he's pushing boundaries and the way he's changing the language of filmmaking is integral to the story he's telling. Um, he does it time and again. Memento, um, 
uh, Inception, um, Interstellar does it a bit, and then now this. I think he's always making sure that his tricks serve a purpose and a story. I think that that, that makes them so much more uh, uh, valuable and uh, powerful. Definitely. All right. Uh, so anything else you want to mention before we move on? Uh, I think I'm ready. All right. Let's begin our review of Watchmen. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping. Watchmen was released in 2009. It's based on the graphic novel of the same name uh, by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. It was directed by Zack Snyder on a budget of $130 million. It grossed uh, $185 million, you know, not the, exactly the type of film that will light the box office on fire. Uh, but, you know, then again, Dunkirk isn't either. <laughs> so <laughs> what do any of us know? Uh, it yeah. stars Jackie Earl Haley, Billy Crudup, Patrick Wilson, Malin Ackerman, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Matthew Good, Carla Gugino, and Matt Frewer. It was written by David Hayter and Alex C. It was shot by the one and only Larry Fong, and the score was composed by Tyler Bates, who worked on Snyder's first four films. Um, so, James, I, uh, you want to read that uh, brief synopsis? In 1985, where former superheroes exist, the murder of a colleague sends active vigilante Rorschach into his own sprawling investigation, uncovering something that could completely change the course of history as we know it. All right. Um, this is completely unrelated, but I just saw the Peter Rabbit trailer and I'm angry. <laughs> it looks like they turned up the Peter Rabbit Matrix Potter story into a uh, kid-friendly Wolf of Wall Street, and I want to punch something. But uh, carry on. <laughs> so, why did you want to bring this film on here? Um. Well, it's the same reason that I've. Um, I'm assuming we both wanted to bring Man of Steel and batman versus superman on here which is just snyder is in such control of his films that to me the end result of this movie is an incredibly cohesive film that's impressive in almost every aspect especially visually and um just general plot it's one of my favorite comic book films of all time and so Honestly, I'm always looking for an excuse to uh, praise Snyder as a director. So <laughs> it had been a while since we had done the last He gives a one. lot of those. Do what? He gives a lot of those. <laughs> excuses yeah. to praise him. Exactly. And so I just figured it had been a good while since the last one. Um, and I really love this movie. So I was definitely ready to talk about another one of his. Yeah. So uh, have you read the uh, graphic novel? I've read about the first half of it. Um, but unfortunately, I had to check it back in, so I do plan on rectifying that. So I guess if purists listen to this and they say, oh, well, that's why you love it, well, I, I don't think you judge a movie based on how close it sticks to its source, but judge it as a movie first, and then you can have your personal quibbles with deviations, but... Yeah, um, so yeah, I, I, I'll, I, I wanted to read the graphic novel before we reviewed it, but it didn't work out, um, and, you know, I hear this criticism tossed around like more than I can even count that it should have been a mini series and there's no way for a film to fully adapt the story. And just so many people tell me, Oh, it's just not as good. There's nowhere, nowhere near as deep and it just, and all kinds of criticisms from book fans. Um, 
and you know, even though I hoped I could read it, I'm kind of glad I didn't now that because I think, I I think the perspective, I think the best perspective for viewing a film is you know as a film, even if it's an adaptation, it needs to work as a film on its own. You know, a good adaptation is one that can capture the the spirit and ideas of the book and give them and but also make an audience feel like they have a full and complete experience even if they haven't read the book and this film gives me a a complete and very deep experience so maybe the book is deeper but i don't i don't think cramming in a whole lot more information would make necessarily make it better you know you have to a film needs to you know cut away everything extraneous and to just give you know one cohesive idea and this film does that remarkably well Definitely, and uh, what's weird is I have read enough of it to feel as if, personally, as as I was reading it initially, I was incredibly impressed with how faithful the movie stuck with it. Like, there were moments where I'm like, okay, so that shot in the movie that I'm such a fan of, that is a direct adaptation of this specific panel right here. Um, it's It feels very, very faithful. Um but, you know, since I haven't finished it, I guess I can't speak on that too much. Yeah, I guess just, you know, diving right into that is the style of this film is very comic booky. I don't know if that's a word, but I should be. Uh, from, you know, the the framing and composition of the shots to uh, the dialogue, it feels like you're kind of reading, you know, a graphic novel. And I think that's a mild criticism. I have some of the dialogue. It's a bit clunky, but... It's a it's a really fascinating way to watch a film, to experience it, you know, as if you're, re- as if you're like reading this this graphic novel and, and the way it's translated, in, not in a way I I didn't find it distracting, but it is it, it's you know kind of always on your mind. I think it, it I think it enriches the experience more than anything. Yeah, stylistically, this movie is just really incredible. Uh, like I said, that like the structure of it, the way it's presented, it it does feel like an adaptation. The way uh, I I think there there were some critics of, of its pacing, um, and to, I kind of understand it, but it I actually enjoy. It. Like one of the scenes that comes to my mind is the the funeral scene, in which we have like the beginning and ending of that scene itself like from the beginning of the funeral to the end of the funeral is a good length of time it's because it's at least least a half hour but we keep cutting to all these different events and when you're writing like a script with no adaptation i don't feel like that's the natural thing to do because it's based off of a comic book and comic books can kind of just jump to different panels like going from page to page and then coming back here it feels like it's adapting that format and a lot of time I dislike that because I think that they are just different mediums. And just because something was cool and compelling in a comic book doesn't mean that you can transfer it and adapt it to the screen with the exact same format. But here it really worked to me. Like it, the funeral there, in my opinion, was given a lot of weight simply because of how dense, like the, how, how many uh, different asides we were given. And the, really setting up the context of that funeral and catching us up to speed as to why it's important. Um, for whatever reason, just this specific adaptation of that 
format felt really right for the movie. Yeah, um, there were it, it, there is a distinct episodic nature that feels very serialized to the film. Um, it's I I think I came down to four different parts. Um, seems you have you know the opening which beautifully sets up this world and the, the whole the Cold War paranoia, and then the second segment is like really incredible thing you know surrounding the funeral but uh, but you know introducing each one of our characters through their interactions and relationship to the character of the comedian and we get kind of we get to really know this man this really horrible person in a, in a fascinating way throughout that sequence and then you know, i think this is the, the third part is mainly up Night Owl and Silk Spectre's story, and then the, the the final part is the climax. Um, and while I I notice the distinct, uh, you know, serialized feel of it, it doesn't really. And I I mean I can acknowledge it might technically be a flaw. It really doesn't bother me. I think it, the whole thing just flows together. All these parts they come together to make a really seamless and en- engrossing whole. Yeah, and I think. What makes it work for me is just the story is so compelling that I'm willing to keep watching it for the exact same reason I'm willing to binge watch a show. You know, if I'm going to watch four episodes of a show in a row, like there's very there's a very distinct format. There's clear breaks and things, but I'm still watching one continuous story, even though it feels broken up in parts. And so that. I'm kind of already used to that. So when watching this movie and it does feel episodic, I'm like, okay, well, I feel like the movie is kind of jumped to a new, not at a new point in time, but it's kind of finished this segment and we're on to something new in the story. I'm already used to, to seeing multiple episodes of something in a row and I'm willing to keep watching it just because of how compelling this world is from the very outset. And that while... It does feel like new plot beats are introduced and then they go away and new um, side plots come and go. There is still that one driving force of the story that keeps you going forward. And so I I can understand why maybe it does bother others, but for me, I it really affects it in no way. Yeah, and I'm... I'm I'm glad you know you know that there uh, Damon Lindelof is supposedly making a miniseries, which I think will be fascinating, and maybe this this story will work better as a miniseries. Um, but uh, I I think the the film does is uh, you know very fascinating on its own right, and I, I want to move just into the characters because the characters are amazing in this movie. Uh, you know, we we'll start out with uh, Rorschach played by Jackie Earl Haley, and you know this guy is only. You know, maybe five. He's like five feet five and has the body mass of a toothpick. Yet, I completely believe he is the most terrifying force of nature in a prison full of humanity's worst. Uh, the, the the entire performance is stunning. Just the way he, the just the, the the physicality he brings, because his face is completely covered for, I uh, probably eighty ninety percent of his screen time, but he still presents a complete and complex character that is terrifying but also it he um you you completely understand who he who and why he is what he is um and like he, he there's he has a very weird idiosyncratic way of talking that could have become really annoying and uh weird but he just he, the way he says it, he just 
you just buy it it works yeah it's weird. like whether people love or hate this adaptation i can't imagine anyone not reading the novel going forward with his voice in mind um just because of how <laughs> perfect he is in the role uh, and i don't want to just continue to bring up criticisms that people have who are fans of the adaptation but there is one thing that i i did want to mention which is a lot of people feel like in the graphic novel he's very he's portrayed as like just unhinged and crazy and like all very psychotic and things like that and that the movie just tried to turn him into a like a cool superhero like like oh yeah this is the good guy and yeah to me one of the things I found so impressive about his performance... I, I don't see how you could see that, think that that's, watching that's this movie. That's exactly how I feel. Like it, The way they describe him um, in the graphic novel, I'm like, okay, well, the person you just described is exactly who I saw on screen. Because what I found with Jackie Earl Haley is he, much like the majority of this cast, strikes a balance between a lot of different things. Because he is... I mean, he is pretty cool. Like, he's got a cool... Like, the trench coat, the mask... In a lot of ways, some during, when he takes some actions, I as a viewer can't help but go like, "All right, that was pretty cool." Like this, this is a fun <laughs> character to watch, but he's still very much crazy. Like they never try to downplay, like his mental instability. I don't feel like they're ever trying to say, "Well, that's that's too much." We just need a more straightforward superhero that we can root for. Um, he's, and he may be my favorite character, but I'm. That doesn't mean that I'm rooting for him in all aspects. I can still very clearly tell that there is a disconnect in some way between him and and sanity. Um, I don't know. I, that that is one criticism that I've always just really disagreed with. Yeah, I think that that's part of this film's you know critique and deconstruction of the superhero genre is how it presents these characters that are cool, that aren't really super badass. And they do awesome, cool things, but it also makes you feel kind of gross and sort of complicit for cheering with them. I mean, because he is, he's a horrible person. You know, he seems to despise and hate humanity in general. He, he's just, everything is about, you know, justice and there's no mercy in his worldview. And he seems, this is not a term I use, I think it's, horrifically overused but he's like homophobic and just like rather sexy he's just constantly throwing around the word whore he's he's just a, a nasty person and i think i think he's he's possibly a psychopath definitely a sociopath but he has you know found a way to make it work while maintaining this strict morality you know he takes out his hatred of humanity and his disgust of society through this way of becoming this, you know, this uh, perpetrator of justice. Um, you know, he's you know, where, like evil must be punished even in the face of Armageddon. He's just this driving force who's trying to enact what he views as right and just on on the scum of humanity around him. Uh, I, have you seen uh, Les Mis? Uh, I have not. Okay, he, he really, I'm, I'm sure he has to be like partially based on the character of Javert, who is this uh, police inspector who uh, spends the entire film chasing our hero Jean Valjean uh, because he's, he escaped from his parole. And even though you know Jean Valjean has spent his entire life you know rebuilding himself and doing good for the world around him, the police inspector you know, has to chase him, has to arrest him because 
there there is there's no mercy there's no possibility of grace or mercy in his worldview it's it's just the world is there's good and there's evil and evil must be punished this man is a criminal that's all he can that's all he ever will be so he has to punish him and spoilers both their characters you know end in the same way once they realize that there is a possibility for something else outside of their narrow worldview even though they acknowledge that this might be the the right or they, they make the choice that this is probably the better right thing to do their worldview is so entwined with who they are that they they have to kill themselves they cannot exist in this world uh and not uphold this this idea of justice and goodness that they have created for themselves um just really fascinating and com- i think compelling characters yeah and i think one of the really cool things that rorschach offers which is actually something i think almost every major character offers is is a different worldview, like a different lens to see the same events through. We have so many different competing philosophies from all the different heroes in this, and Rorschach offers the very rigid one like you're talking about. It's justice comes with no grace. There's there's no room for anything. And you know, the the scene where um he says, you know, Men go to prison, dogs get put down. I feel like that was the scene almost where he firmly established, even though it was very much present already, this this kind of this idea of there will be punishment and punishment to the most extreme. Like justice will come like surely and as hard as possible. Um and so just to see that character interact with all of these other characters with different competing ideologies, it's, it's a really, really interesting character. And then I just, I can't talk enough about how amazing Jackie Earl Haley was in the role. He's just so good. And he, he probably gets my favorite lines in the movie. Yeah. yeah just the, the scene where he douses the, the other inmate in boiling oil. It's just... I love the way they have him fight. It's just this completely brutal, practical uh, method that, with no holds barred, but there's no there's no uh, frills to any of. There's nothing showy. It's just he's gonna kill you in the quickest, most brutal way possible, and then he's done. Um, and just the crazy behind his eyes in that scene, and also the how tragic he is in the end. You know when he's begging for um for uh Dr. Manhattan to kill him it's it's heartbreaking and just I I don't know why this guy isn't cast more in Hollywood cuz he he's incredible yeah he really is i feel like there's just a very i guess specific kind of character that people assume he can play and he just doesn't end up getting that part very much but man he's got the acting chops for a lot of different roles yeah, and as I mentioned before, you know, the fact that his face is covered and it's just his voice. I, I, I wonder how often he was under the mask because you know, there's a lot of really awesome, like, wire work with his – a very practical wire work that I think is very hard to pull off realistically. I think they do it. and So I'm not sure when it was a stuntman, when it was him, but there is a very distinct physicality to, to the performance that is consistent throughout. Yeah. I, we'd already mentioned him, um, but another character who I just think is incredibly – fascinating and interesting to think about is dr manhattan who a lot of the movie kind of revolves around um i think that once again billy crudup is 
an underrated actor as well. And mm-hmm. like Jackie Earl Haley playing Rorschach, there's a lot of different things that he's balancing here. Um, he, it, in a weird way, his character feels both naive and near omniscient at the same time. It's this weird, like, he has moments of discovery and moments where it feels like he's just completely disconnected from human emotion and human experience while also knowing almost everything. Like, he sees the future, he understands, he sees things going on at different points in the world. He's so all-knowing and yet so um, other from everyone else and disconnected from a regular person. And, and then, as well, just in his terms of his own personality, he feels both incredibly, in some ways, sympathetic in his plight as well as annoying like there's a lot of things about his character that's just i wouldn't want to be his girlfriend yeah but then at other points you think i insert to a certain extent i understand why he's doing this or why he's feeling this way so he's he's such a complex character and he has so many different things that almost seem like paradoxes um but they all kind of work for one like very cohesive and complete character yeah it's weird because it is such a monotone performance but it's like he seems to be either kind of in a state of boredom or like this mild surprise that at the way everything's playing out around him as if he's like as if the way these you know petty humans are acting is just kind of an interesting riddle to him the way he plays um you know someone who is um, nearly a god i mean he's almost all powerful he controls he he's outside of time he controls all matter and you know what what that would do to a human psyche once you know broken have they've come out of the constraints of you know the different uh you know outside of the constraints of time and space that make us who we are you know what would happen to someone you know especially in this secular nihilistic world that is presented and i like that they didn't make him evil I wouldn't say he's good. I mean, he se- he seems to have you know those remnants of humanity that kind of wants to. He wa- he sort of kind of maybe wants to help people, sort of not really. I don't know, but he's also they don't turn him into you know the evil AI, which would have been the easy way. And I think this is this is far more interesting to where he'll occasionally help people, but he's just his whole uh, philosophy seems to be you know what's the point? You people are stupid. You're gonna die. I, no matter what I do, you're just going to destroy yourselves. And you know, the fact that he even goes along with this plan that's going to completely smear his name and turn him into an e- uh, evil, he just he doesn't care. Like, he, he is so unconcerned with humanity that if they think of him as the worst thing in the world, eh, whatever. I'll do, sure I'll, I'll do this as a favor to you, but I really don't care. It's and the the fact that. Even in the face of the destruction that Ozymandias, call, Ozymandias causes, he just seems to be kind of mildly amused, and he's like, he's like, oh my god, this is kind of fun. I don't know what's going to happen. This is almost kind of fun. Thank you. Yeah, I know you murdered all these people, but it's it's all just a, kind of a game to him. Uh, and, and Billy Crudup really plays that you know completely disaffected thing so well. And, and something about the way he plays it. 
he does feel like very to a certain extent like discompassionate and uncaring in general towards what's happening and yet at the same time there there still feels like there's some sort of deep sadness in him like when he's away um on the moon all by himself and he's kind of taken this huge break from humanity it does feel like boredom but boredom brought upon like regret or some sort of just dissatisfaction with his life and with the way things are going so all all while he still feels very unconcerned and uncaring towards what's going on there's still and it's probably just because he still has some semblance of humanity and he definitely at once was a person so he understands what's going on there's still some sort of underlying sadness that he has to all of these events um and that there there are two different moments to me where his character does things that it's really interesting and you you'd mentioned one of them where you know he become he essentially becomes omniscient and instead of going the evil route and like i like the ai route he he kind of just says all right whatever i'm done and so to me that's a it's way more interesting to just see somebody achieve this like state of almost all power and then decide, you know what, whatever, I'm not even going to really use this. I'm just going to leave you guys. And then this, the second moment where I feel like they, they do something that other movies or stories wouldn't is when he, he comes back and he, or uh, whenever Silk Spectre speaks with him and kind of like brings him back into the into the foray of what's going on and I guess back onto the good guy side. It's not this huge redemptive like, okay, he's one of the good guys now. Now he's going to come and beat the bad guy and we're going to get our good ending. He comes back and he sees the villain's plan. It's like, wait a second. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something here. And it's just once you think you're going to give this, this nice redemptive triumph to this character... Another like morally gray plot twist is introduced, and his character ends up going in a direction that you may not have anticipated. And and then, uh, lastly, yeah, I want to jump right there. The line uh, he says, where after Ozymandias lays out his um his master plan and what it means, like, do you understand? He's like, neither condoning nor condemning. I understand. It's it's just. He is so pragmatic in his worldview that, that he just he just kind of goes along with it because he, he thinks, oh well yeah it's it, he it can he can acknowledge it's horrible but he just doesn't he doesn't have the emotion enough to actually you know have a human indignation against it. He's he's not because he's outside of time and space and he's gotten to a point to where he has so little in common with humans. He's all, he's no longer really having to operate under what he would probably view now is like the constraint of morality. He can be the pragmat, like the, he can just be very pragmatic about everything because he's, he's so disconnected from us now that he can, he can look at it as statistics and say, okay, whether y'all will think it's good or bad, whether I think it's good or bad, it's kind of irrelevant. I'm disconnected to everything enough to say, Okay, I I understand this, and I understand why why it's going to be this way. Um, mm-hmm. And then once again with him, it's just it's another 
worldview. It's another way to see these same events through the eyes of someone who, as, when compared to Rorschach, sees things incredibly differently. Um, and so to have, at this point, like based on the characters we've talked about, these two different ide- ideas and lenses to see the same story through, it's, uh, it's really interesting. It makes the plot that much more compelling when you're seeing it from all these different angles. And uh, just moving on to another character I, I really find really fascinating is uh, Dan as the, uh, the, um, the night owl. Um, on my first viewing, I kind of came away thinking, you know, he, he's the obvious good guy. He's the kind of the one guy who seems to be trying to do the right thing always. And, and just you know, the one guy you can root for from start to finish. But actually watching through it, this time, even though you know there was always a rather kind of pathetic, adorably dorky quality to the way Patrick Wilson plays him, and Patrick Wilson is amazing. He should be a superstar, really. I mean, he has the look. I don't know why he isn't. Uh, but I mean, he plays this really kind of sad, vulnerable character. Um, and the first time, I, I kind of you find that really likable. But this time, I think there's a far more intentional used to his character i i think he's just he's like a lost little boy who's you know turned to super heroics for to discover this sense of purpose you know to give him a feeling of belonging um and you know there's when him and silk specter decide to go out for a you know the night of heroics you know obviously there's it's born out of the sexual frustration but at its core it's just you know these two children trying to find a coping mechanism for the fear of the coming apocalypse, you know, the world's ending. So let's go beat some people up. Sure. You know, they do good things. They save people, but it's really, even, even with these more good characters than everyone else, it's all just for themselves. Um, you know, it's just the only, the, like the other, all the other characters have this really driving underlying philosophy that guides their characters through every choice they make. These two, especially Dan, it's there's really no. It's, there doesn't seem to be much underlying philosophy or purpose. They're they're just, even though they are the least awful characters, they are they're just they're only doing it to try and find a way to ignore the dread. Um, and I think that's that's most apparent in the uh, prison fight. You know, on the surface, it seems just like you know Snyder doing cool stuff just to be cool and. Uh, I, I don't doubt there's a lot of that involved. You know, Snyder can never resist his chance to do something awesome and hurt people in creative ways. And a lot of people do criticize the film's stylist action as over-the-top and meaningless. Um, but I don't think it is. While I love this action sequence, and I think it's some of the best uh, hand-to-hand combat we get in American films, I'm pretty convinced the underlying purpose is to show how pointless it is. Um, you know... It's just it, it. It felt so shallow and childish. This time, watching it this time as they're going through slow motion, kicking these people, kicking the crap out of these people, it just felt so silly and trite. And I think that, and the film, I think the film calls it out. You know, where uh, with uh, Ozymandias' line is where he says, "You know, Dan, grow up. You know, your schoolboy her- heroics are redundant. What have they achieved?" And you look at it, it's like his character really has no point or purpose he's just even though he's a hero he does good things he's just like someone stumbling around trying to find his own sense of validation and i think that's probably a critique of the more 
that's one of the most interesting and I think subtle critiques of of superhero uh, as a genre is why are these people doing it? What, what, and like, what purpose does it serve? You know, they you know, they, they the street level heroics are just they just feel like a guy working through his own problems and just doing it completely for himself without any actual meaning or philosophy behind it. And it, it felt like a critique of, you know, the big explosion blockbusters, which I love as much as anybody. But I, I did, I do find that really interesting that it seems to be kind of commenting on that where even the really nice good guy is just, he's just a child and there's really no purpose to anything he does. A lot of his motivation in some ways feels selfish, not, not selfish in a way where it's like, it's just coming at the constant cost of others, but like you said, this is at the end of the day, this is for him. He's looking for purpose in this world. He's looking for almost like a distraction for this coming doomsday. And and he he's the one who can roll over in the end when in the even in the face of the horror of what Ozymandias did, he's just like Okay, because unlike Rorschach, he, he has no real driving philosophy. Yeah, and, and that was a thing that um you you had mentioned before we uh, before we recorded that you found that he may be one of the most interesting characters in the whole movie, and that's actually something that I had I had kind of thought watching it again as well, where he says um or no no where, he says, where one thing I had noticed this time was that he feels like a hero trying to take the easiest way out, like trying to be a hero in the easiest of ways. You know, he he doesn't have this rigid stance on justice. He doesn't have this uncompromising view of morality. He's there like, oh, if there are bad guys there, sure, I'll go in and I'll fight them. If the government says I have to stop, okay, I mean, I want to, but my hands are tied. But now I actually kind of do want to get back, so I'll do it kind of under the radar. And now here's this big plan, and because I don't really have a consistent worldview or morality, like, I mean, I don't have to do anything. Like if the, for this plan to achieve, or for this plan to go into effect, nothing is required of me other than that I turn a blind eye. Um, it seems like it's going to do the most amount of good. Ozymandias has this unlocked. I'll just let him do this, and I'll pretend that I'm the real good guy of the story. And so it just feels like he's trying to be a hero without ever having to deal with the cost of being a hero. It's just being a hero as so long as it's easy um, and nothing really require, is required of him. Yeah, he he tries to maintain this personal indignation at what uh, Osmandius did. I, I, I don't doubt that a part of it is real and sincere. What he did was horrible and he's obviously very distraught, but it all just kind of caves in in the face of you know, time and pressure. And it's it's such an interesting character because as an audience external to the story, you know, we can look at that and be like, oh, he, you know, he lacks spine, he, this and that. But it feels very real. Like, it feels like that's just a, a real genuine human response to this. Like, it's like I, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess there's nothing really in my power to stop. I don't, I don't want to have to take a stand, like a hard stance on any of this in case I'm wrong. And so it's, it's not that he's making these decisions because he's incompassionate or uncaring about what's going on. It's just he doesn't really want to have to put in the time or effort in, into making a decision other than the ones that are seem most apparent and present. Yeah. 
And I guess, so that, that's my defense of Snyder's cool action scenes. And on the other hand, they don't need a defense because they are freaking awesome. Yeah. The, the All fact that they the mean head... anything is just an added bonus because those things are just cool to look at. Yeah, the, the the way he shoots it and like to make every motion memorable and I there's such a beautiful fluidity to the way the action is shot and every shot is wide, there's no cutting. Um it's just they're just a joy to watch from a filmmaking perspective and someone who really loves action scenes and fight scenes and people punching each other. Um especially my favorite one I think is the uh this scene in in uh in Molek's apartment after uh Rorschach is framed and as he's trying to get out and then when he lands to the pavement and and you have all the cops coming at him and he's like beating them with him. he's got the belly club trying to fight back and they just keep coming at him until he's finally beaten down and pull off his mask it's this really just beautiful piece of filmmaking I think yeah it, almost every single fight scene feels distinct and iconic in my mind I mean even just the initial break in into the apartment is is such an amazingly crafted sequence and there's not seeming like seemingly an incredible amount of choreography but ev- like you said every motion is like designed to look cool while still like being i guess practical in this overstylized world um yeah, every image of that break in especially like the the shattering the window and falling down in slow motion <laughs> and Every, every single action beat just feels cool in and of itself, but pushes the action scene that much further and does one more thing. Yeah, every sequence is just so much fun to watch. Yeah, that's what he, he Snyder does. He makes these these sequences that I feel are so they're the way they are visually presented. It, it, it even though you could accuse it of style or substance, I. I think it it all just serves to pull you into the emotion of the scene, you know, the brutality of the violence and you know, the the way he shoots the characters. It, it all just draws you in and makes you like it's it just makes the film engrossing. I really think most of the criticism of, his, of Snyder's visual style are so shallow because I think this is, that's what cinema should do. I mean, the the best films you know draw you in and give you an experience, and I think his he does that as good as anyone can. Uh, with the way he uses visuals and and the language of film, yeah, and and all of the action, it it still feels like it means something. Like what you said, the, what you got from the prison scene is essentially like you can think it's cool, but at the end of the day, you can still say to Night Owl, like, "Grow up." This is sure it looks cool, but what does it mean anything? And and I think it says a lot about characters too, like the the scene where they're about to get mugged and they fight incredibly graphic and violent and brutal but then the characters just kind of continue to walk on nonchalantly afterwards like that's that's the kind of world that that this is where you can do that and keep moving on it's not just violence for violence sake it informs us about this is what this world looks like um and and the opening scene you know this we learned so much about the comedian over the course of the movie that that beginning scene means more where it's like it's so brutal but it makes sense because this man lived such a brutal life it was only natural that his death equal his life um Mm -hmm. and just how visceral and unkind it was and we could talk about the comedian too Uh, there are too many fascinating characters in this movie 
Um, he, he's, he's, he's ostensibly a psychopath and Jeffrey Dean Morgan is so amazing at playing those. Uh, but he, he, he's also charismatic and almost in a way likable, even though he's utterly despicable. Um, and I think you know each one. I think each of these characters is a commentary on a different type of superhero, and and you know what what can happen with each of these characters. And I think Jeffrey Dean Morgan is the psychopath, but he's found a way to work within the current system. And he, I mean, he is one of the heroes. He's one of the good guys. But any other film, he would be the villain. But. Since he does it for the good guys, he's working for the good guys. He's one of them, and so he can, you know, play out his lust for violence with impunity because he's on the right, on the quote unquote right side. Um, and I, I find it f- funny that he seems to be the most self-aware character, um, and in a way possibly even the spokesperson for the film's you know underlying nihilism uh there are several scenes where he he you see that he just he sees through the charades of the politics and the heroics and just like looks right into the depths of human nature and he he seems to understand people at least within the context of this world so much better than everyone else and but but even then, even though he is he is so vicious, like even this most despicable person is you know horrified and broken to his core when he discovers Adrian's you know final bid for humanity salvation. Even that <laughs> crosses his line. Yeah, something I find like interesting about his character is that it's almost like he. He sees things in almost the exact same way Rorschach does, but just comes to a completely different conclusion. Like, he views humanity in the exact same light that Rorschach does, where it's, this world is despicable, the people who live in this world are despicable. And instead of saying, and I'm going to be the one person to bring justice, regardless of what it means, he's going to say comedian says and i'm gonna join it i'm gonna be despicable because this world allows me to be because his it's almost like he's just enjoying the fact that he's come to this nihilistic worldview when he he drops to the street and he says you want to know what happened to the american dream you're looking at it like he's almost satisfied like this is what it all means and i'm gonna have fun and do whatever i want and operate with this system and be the psychopath that I am because I've discovered that this world allows me to be the psychopath I am. Um, so it's it's like looking... It, or I guess he, he comes to the same conclusion as Rorschach. I guess I should reword that. He comes to the same conclusion as Rorschach about humanity and what life means and that there's almost no meaning and people are just terrible. But he acts upon it in a the polar opposite way where he joins in with what he views as the scum in a way that almost, but he's, he's given power over them. And so in his mind, it's like, well, they would do the same if they were in this position. So I'm going to live out my violent fantasies and do whatever I want because I happen to be in a position that allows me. Yeah. Terrifying. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I guess this comes to one thing that I didn't really care for. 
Silk Spectre. Um, first of all, Malin Ackerman just isn't a very good actress. Uh, she's incredibly wooden, and she's like not so much. The dialogue just falls really flat. Um, and well, I think a lot of it is her fault. I don't. It doesn't help that I don't think the character is very good. Um, you know, we talked about all the other characters had either an underlying motivation of philosophy or at least a purpose. And all of them are kind of deeply flawed in their own way. And she is flawed. I, I, but I, I really can't place her as to what she means or what purpose she serves. Um, like, I don't necessarily mind that you know, her and her mother seem to be characters that just kind of run between men to define themselves and and whatnot. Because, you know, unfortunately, there are people like that in the real world but i just i don't see what that what purpose that character that type of character serves in this story for the type for the themes and overall plot the film is going for i don't really understand where she comes in you know for the screen time she is given um you know she's she is kind of a like like dan like all the other characters kind of sad and pathetic in her own way but i don't i don't know why yeah, I feel pretty much the same way about it, where it feels like her character's mostly just along for the ride, and she's she exists to be something that affects other characters' story arcs. But when you like when you look at her character by herself, like isolated from what the impact she has on other people, it it there isn't really anything you can point to. Like like with Dan, we could we can trace his to you know to a large extent his worldview and his motivations and the way he sees things and it all it it gives us you know one perspective to look at these events and then same with Ozymandias and with Rorschach a comedian they're all different completely different ideas on the spectrum but hers is just i mean there's elements of Dan's in there where it's just I mean, I kind of want to be a hero. I need a distraction from what's going on. But I just feel like his is way more tangible. And mm-hmm. whereas hers is just kind of there. I mean, I guess you can say it exists if you look there. But like you said, what, is it, what does it mean? What does it mean for the story? What does it, what does it offer the movie that we, we're not kind of already getting from other characters? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you know, a, a better actress, I think, could have brought a lot more dimension but i think ultimately the character is flawed uh at an essential script level unfortunately and which is which is you know weird because like she's first building everything i I don't understand that because she doesn't seem to be really the main character but uh and she has a lot of screen time but really no real purpose i guess the last person to uh to bring up at least of of the watchman would be ozymandias uh, or ozymandias however you pronounce it um he what what do you think of his character um well i i want to say i like him (laughs) i don't like him uh but i i do think he's another interesting uh you know commentary on superheroes uh i really like his performance you know as a guy who thinks himself to be the, the best human being on earth and while 
he is ostensibly benevolent or at least has benevolent intentions. He just, he looks, he just kind of looks down on the world and just seems so kind of sneering. And his, his plan to save the world, you know, almost works. And he seems to have a righteous goal, but there's this, you know, the sense of, you know, just smug pragmatism that pervades everything he does. And, the fact that he seems to feel he's doing some kind of penance by forcing himself to watch the suffering he causes and fund the rebuilding, it just makes it feel all the more gross, like as if he honestly believes he can somehow atone for his crime by if he can make himself feel bad enough for it. It's just something so smug and self-entitled about everything he does that I think Matthew Good is really uh, good at um, at pulling off. Yeah, this is another... Uh, criticism that a lot of people who enjoy the books have against it, where they just th- this one to me almost seems the most petty because it's almost entirely based around visuals. Like he doesn't look the part, he doesn't act how they would picture the character act, and it, and then even like you know his costume is different from it was. But I think that you know having not really gotten to the I haven't gotten to the final confrontation with him in the graphic novel, but if everything that I've read and, you know, seeing the movie several times now, it feels like he serves the purpose that Alan Moore wanted him to serve in the in the graphic novel. And he definitely serves the purpose in the movie. And there's a lot of interesting things about his character where it's, he does look at himself as the best of humanity and everything he says to really feels insincere in a lot of ways like when he says like oh and whenever i found out what it would take you know oh i was really torn up about it and and i'm gonna i'm gonna force myself to watch everything it's almost like saying you want to know how good of a person i am i would i would force myself to watch this just you know just because it's what i deserve being the one to do this it feels like he's patting him he's in a like a perpetual state of patting himself on the back for what he's doing. Like any sort of regret or remorse is just this facade. And he's, I I can't help but feel like the second he came to the conclusion of what must be done, it's like, all right, well, I'll get to it. And I'll tell people that I was super sad about it. It, it just feels like maybe he does have legitimate good intentions. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, he's, he's not going to, of course, he's not going to, come forward about being the one behind the plan so you, he won't be the one to take credit for saving the world but maybe he just wants the world to continue to exist so that he can, can so that he can fund efforts to rebuild and continue to be seen as the good guy in a way i feel like you can make the argument that everything he's doing is just an attempt to continue to live the way he has lived to continue to live in a world where he can be seen as the good guy if that means doing this absolutely horrendous act for the sake of making sure the world keeps spinning he'll do it because he wants to keep living and keep living in the limelight and being praised as a hero yeah what's scary is that he actually makes a lot of sense (laughs) yeah and he he knows it like he i feel like he knows the other members of the watchmen better than well 
it, it does feel as if the comedian, like you said, is the most aware, self-aware, and then just aware of everyone else. But to a large extent, Ozymandias also understands the group, and he he knows that if Dan gets there, he can be reasoned with. He knows the kind of person. He knows the pragmatism that exists in Doctor Manhattan, the willingness to be complicit if it's technically the good or can be seen as a good thing with uh, Spec- the Silk Spectre and uh, Night Owl. And I'm sure he knew that Rorschach was going to end up having to die and that Dr. Manhattan would be there to do it. He he knows his plan makes sense and he knows how to convince people of it and he knows how to manipulate everybody into doing exactly what he wants. Yeah, I like the line. I'm not a comic book villain. You think I would be? I would sit here telling you all this is the slightest possibility of you stopping it? Well, I don't think I really love about this film is, you know, the setting and how how powerful the film's sense of place is. Um, you know, it starts off with that really beautiful uh, montage in the opening over the credits with uh, with uh, Bob Dylan's song, The Times Are a Change, and playing over this really kind of colorful, stylized alternate history that, that, that just perfectly sets up this heightened yet deeply I, I, realistic isn't the right word there's there's an honesty to how the film portrays humanity humanity but it's also a very stylized and heightened reality but uh i think that that montage completely gives this film a sense of place in time and the way it goes from you know the optimism of the 50s and just slowly degrades into the terror and um you know, this underlying dread of the Cold War, but also this heightened version of the Cold War with this, uh, the device of the Doomsday Clock, which I really liked. Um, just, there is such a sense of, you know, pessimism and doom that pervades the entire film. It's very, it's very much a kind of a noir uh, type film, uh, but just the way you just feel this sense of depression. It kind of just hangs over the entire film. And normally I hate movies like that, but I guess there's enough uh, thought, thoughtful commentary to chew on that I can get past it. But just the, the way Zack Snyder could just build a, a world, like, like, like he did with 300, this ridiculously heightened reality of these macho men, but you just he just immerses you into it. Um, I think Larry Fong's cinematography goes a long way into that. He's shot all of his films except for actually the upcoming Justice League. And he sees he, he's like on, on such a perfect level with um Snyder, the just the way they can capture his vision. And there's one really cool thing I I watched in a video kind of studying Larry Fong's cinematography is how he would spray down the streets uh all the, for all the night scenes in, on pavement. He would soak the pavement and so the kind of the light just reflects off it and it, it just creates this really beautiful um environment that <laughs> also just you get the sense of all the, the death and decay. Yeah. You know, I mean there's always a criticism style over substance with Snyder, but I think he's in such control over his style that he uses it to give context to the substance. Like that that opening scene, and even a lot of people who hate the movie all acknowledge just how like perfect and amazing the uh, the opening credits are but i mean it it feels weird that you know most of his critics praise that scene whenever that's that i mean that is style that's incredibly stylistic 
And I think what that the opening credits do is what all of his very stylish stylistic sequences do, which is bring bring this heightened world to life. Like if you know the, the nihilism of the world feels heightened, the the danger is heightened. So it only makes sense that everything about it matches that. The environment, the physicality, the look, it all matches this heightened sense of reality that the story almost demands like i I don't the movie can't look normal and too real world i think for the plot to work so um yeah even even from the beginning he does such a good job of establishing the setting and tone of what this movie is yeah and and just every moment of composition is just beautiful to look at um, even apart from its thematic importance, so I don't know. People praised guys like Nicholas Winden and Greffin, so I, I think the, the criticisms for Snyder feel so fake and shallow to me. Yeah. And just to continue to talk about, you know, his direction, uh, I wonder. Like, it, it feels as if he is in control of like every aspect of the film, um, even to like. The song choice. I I love the. I think there's like four four songs in the movie, and they're great choices just because. I think of there's the more era. than that. Is it? I think yeah. I think it's like closer to like eight or ten. Oh, I I guess I'm thinking of the opening credits and then the uh, ninety nine left balloons. Um, Sound of silence. Sound of silence and all along the watchtower. Yeah, looking at the soundtrack, there's a whole bunch. So some of them are probably closing credits as well. Oh, okay. Uh, well, like the the ones that stick out to me, and then um, that they, they they feel very intentional. Like they they kind of still somewhat ground. Like they remind us that even though this looks different from the '80s, that actually happened. It still, in a weird way, is similar between music and stuff, and it the scenes seem to move along so well with the songs that he chooses it. It wouldn't surprise me if Snyder, you know, handpicked every song and like, not to the extent that, you know, Edgar Wright would do for a baby driver, but, but crafts around crafts, these sequences around the mood and tone that the song choices set. And to me, it's, it's kind of like what I thought of whenever I watched Wes Anderson, where it's like every aspect of this film feels like it would have the fingerprints of Wes Anderson. The same can be said for Snyder, where based on the music choices, you know, the cinematography, um, the sets, everything feels like it has Zack Snyder's touch on it. Um, people say, call him lazy, like the only thing, he's just used his film as an excuse to to make cool looking scenes, but he it's so clear he puts in way too much effort for that to be true because every aspect of this feels like he's had a hand in it. Yeah. A couple of the song choices are, are a little jarring and feel kind of uh, forced, but most of the time it really works to, you know, again, to draw you in and make the scene really engrossing. Um, although unfortunately he has forever ruined hallelujah for me. Uh, <laughs> Which would be my main criticism of this film is that that scene is so gratuitous and pointless, and I would say like borderline pornographic. Thankfully, it's easy to avoid, uh, but yeah, it's it, it. I think that is where you know 
a lot of the criticisms for Snyder can apply. And that, that seems just so so ridiculous. It almost I don't I I feel like I kind of to a certain extent understand its point where it's just it's the natural build for these characters. Like like you said, the the night of heroics kind of begins out of like sexual frustration and so that's where it concludes and then to kind of ha- having it cut instantly um to the hospital bed i, I did i love that cut actually yeah the way you it, it um sorry go on <laughs> well no i mean i'm sure you're saying what you know like it, it is such a to to kind of like you to a certain extent the audience you know likes these characters and wants the best for them and so oh they have this moment and then we we cut kind of to the the more serious plot that's going on and just it's almost like a reminder to the audience like this is still happening well well they have the ending to their night like this is going on what were you going to say about it though yeah it, it was a reinforcement to what i was talking about how you know shallow and selfish they are their motivations are is you know They've done their heroics. They're, they're good. They, they, they've made them. They've made themselves happy. They've, they've been able to stave off their existential dread for a little while. So they're gonna go have sex, and then as this guy dies, the the real face of crime, the real face of uh, you know, Rorschach's war on evil, is dying. It, it it was. I think it was really powerful. As much as I hate the scene, and it did, it did not need to be presented in that way, but yeah, I love that cut. One thing I found interesting is that the film's perspective is entirely on America. Um, and there's obviously a very nasty critique of, you know, Reaganism and American exceptionalism. And it, 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 it seems to be very trying very clearly to show that America was no better. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it seems to really... I, I, I hate the, the notion of American exceptionalism and it trying to, you know, cut down on our ego and show that, like, we are not, we are, we aren't the, you know, the best thing in the world and the 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 the, the cure for humanity's ills. And while I have as much problem with anyone else with America's attitudes toward foreign policy and a lot of the jingoism that can take place. I think especially in this conflict to show the, 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 the flaws entirely on the American side is somewhat disingenuous because, you know, there was a little thing called communism going on in the world. Uh, and, you know, the conflict was there was a conflict of ideals of, of ideas and there was a very real threat that obviously the, I don't think, you know, the stockpile of nuclear weapons is a good idea, but there was a, it, it wasn't in response to a very real threat. And while yes, I'm always up for someone, you know, cutting down on our ego a bit, it just feels, it seems a bit too venomous and one-sided. Uh, I think it could have been, I think it would have better reflected, you know, humanity's self-deception if it showed. Yeah, there are there are two sides. This isn't just selfish, greedy people trying to destroy the world. It's it's you know, it's based it's from a of maybe an exaggerated fear, but a real fear. Yeah, a lot of it to me felt as if it's almost just 
trying to place itself within the genre of like the other 80s movies like you look at the typical 80s political thriller it's like these are the russians they're the bad guys all of the other worlds know they're the bad or all the other you know allied countries know they're the bad guys but we're just going to focus on america like america's the good guy and it felt like it was kind of aware of that in the genre like that's how all of the 80s films of the times were and it was almost just an attempt to mimic that to like have a sense of belonging within that genre but be completely self-aware about it like we are going to only focus on america everything that happens may like every major event is going to revolve around america because that's how things were viewed in the 80s with film and things but there definitely is this sense of you know like you said a somewhat venomous attitude and very like I just think of the uh, uh, the scene in Vietnam as Rorschach, or not Rorschach, as uh, Dr. Manhattan is walking over the fields and just obliterating everybody as this, the music swells up and um, it feels like an exaggerated kind of like, look at us, look at how awesome we are, we're coming in, we're saving the world. So it, it also definitely feels like what you're saying, which is a, a critique of you know, American exceptionalism. Yeah, I, I do love the line, you know, the Superman exists and he is American. I mean, <laughs> that does perfectly capture that time period. Yeah, an interesting thing you mentioned about, you know, as he's, uh, as Dr. Manhattan is killing people, I think the method in which he kills them is shows just how disconnected he is from humanity. He just goes the fastest, most, uh, I guess, uh, uh, efficient way of just make them cease to exist but he's also so unconcerned like when he does that to the people in the bar it's he doesn't understand you know how horrifying that would be to and, and scary that would be to people you know to, with, with you know their guts hanging off the ceiling he's just he's just so disconnected that he that he just blows people up and does it's just it's, it doesn't even it doesn't he's that part of his humanity is, is just completely gone that it doesn't occur to him how horrific that is yeah, I, mean, I know we've already talked about his character but there's still so many other things that can be said um, about his character and in, in the scene you know where the the woman comes in who is pregnant and she ends up getting shot by the comedian and that, that line that feels like super impactful where um He's, you know, he says that she was pregnant with your child, and he just says, "Yeah, and you stood there and watched." Like, with all that Ozzyman dies, or uh, Doctor Manhattan knows, you you still see like the semblance of humanity is still there, like this disgust and acknowledgement. But that almost feels like, in a way, like the turning point for his character, where he's like, "Okay, so this is what people are." are like now that I'm kind of no longer bound by what they're bound by and I can just look at things as the way they are this is this is what they're like you you have that initial look of disgust like what he just saw was horrible um and comedian kind of brought to attention like you you could have stopped it you're the most powerful being in the world and you didn't and it's kind of highlighting the beginning of his just transformation into this 
benevolent superhero into an, a mostly uncaring godlike creature. And, and that almost seems to be the turn, the final turning point for the comedian as well. Like you know, his line was like, "You're losing your touch, Doc. You know, God help us all." It's like <laughs> he finally realizes just how terrifying the world is, and, and you know, just dives right into it. And then, uh, just real quick, while while we're talking about the way in which um, Doctor Manhattan kills and. I love the shot of him when he's giant and he's walking over the hill and we have all of the helicopters flying around him. And to me, that's an example of where the style is the substance. Like, the movie being stylish and drawing attention to itself is the point. Like, it's meant to look like, look at us, we're we're marching in, we're doing, like, it being over the top and flashy is kind of the point of that scene. So um, a lot of time, I feel like when people use that as a criticism, it, it's, it's like there's a, there's an, a lack or there's, there's a lack of the idea that style can serve the substance. And it, it oftentimes, especially with Snyder, who's just so visually minded, it goes hand in hand with the substance and what's being said. I guess uh, the final thing is, I'm curious, what is this film's philosophy? Uh, it seems to be pretty thoroughly nihilistic uh, and with a rather dim view of people. Um, it's it just kind of, it wallows in human violence and every chance it gets just show how self-destructive and stupid people are um and the ultimate the the seems like the only hope they give humanity is a, again appealing to their violence giving them giving them an enemy to fear essentially creating a god that's, that's fascinating you know, they turn manhattan into a vengeful god who will punish us if we're stupid and you know, I guess we are both Christians. We have, you know, the Christian worldview gives us a God that we have to answer to. But the this worldview is so completely nihilistic and and secular that it just shows humanity as someone who will destroy themselves themselves. You know, without that. But even then, it, it, it reminded me a bit of like the Dark Knight, where the answer was, you know, we have to lie to the people. We the people can't know the truth and that's the only way to save them but he, but even then you know it's all for nothing because Rorschach's journal got got away and they're gonna print it and the world's gonna know the truth and humanity's doomed um and normally like as, again like with the film like uh seven is i i have a hard time liking it just because it is so dark and nihilistic but i don't know i i mean i I, I I still can like this. I, I guess it's just because it gives me so much other things to look at and enjoy and think about that I kind of forgive how horrible it is uh, thematically. I may completely off, like I may be completely off in my interpretation of like the intention of the movie, and I probably am, knowing uh, Alan Moore wrote the source material. But it almost felt as if the movie wasn't giving just like this definitive worldview or lens that it was telling the story through. 
you know, because it's an ensemble of all of these different people with different worldviews and different philosophies, it was almost just presenting like this very cold view of this world, like almost like in the same way, you know, people said that uh, even though these two films are completely different in almost every way, you know, people were saying that Dunkirk was cold and it was very, it was presenting it almost just like a, a history book. Like it, it was presenting these stories just as they were as in a way that felt real. And so this to me felt like the movie didn't have one intention like one way or the other to convince us of anything. It was just telling a story that presented different perspectives all on the same idea. And I mean, I'll be all of the almost almost all of those perspectives are incredibly nihilistic. Uh, it wasn't trying to convince us one way or the other. It was just here's an ensemble of different people who feel different ways. And so when we spend time with one character, it's the movie is almost presenting all of the events through that person's worldview. And then we, we spend time with another character and the movie kind of shifts. So it didn't feel like it was trying to make a definitive statement one way or the other, just presenting this heightened storyline through the lens of multiple different characters. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems to be kind of definitive and it's because it, all, all those storylines, you know, each and every worldview has a breaking point within the film, except for the final one, which is, um, I guess, the comedian's worldview. It seems to be the only one that's actually held up. But I, I, what is, so what do you think that the... Um, what is the ending really, like supposed to mean with... I mean, obviously, the entire plan ends up falling through. I feel like that's implied with Rorschach's journal getting published, but... It almost feels like the way the music kind of starts playing, like the song starts coming on as we see his journal, you know, fall into the box. Like, it almost feels like the audience is meant to be cheering at that point. Like, yeah, Rorschach's journal made it true. Like, he never compromised. Are we meant to kind of cheer for the fact that the truth got out? Or is that like a sad moment that this tragic yet ultimately benevolent plan fell through? Yeah, it's... it's... Like, Rorschach is presented as the most, um, not moral, but uh, upright and principled character. And his death is portrayed as a tragedy. Um, and yet, you know, we, we, we are given, you know, we, we are presented with and Ozymandias does give a very compelling argument. Um, while we we also realize that he's evil. I, I, I don't know. That, that, that is interesting. I, I guess ultimately the revelation that the peace can't last and doom is inevitable is a statement. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. Like, I, I guess it is like... We have humans almost have to be tricked in order like we can't know the truth about everything and we have to be fooled into like a not a false sense of safety if the plan works. I mean, I guess it is a very real sense of safety, but it's based off of a lie. And the second that lie will break and people kind of everyone is in the know and they're allowed to act 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but it does it does feel like the movie I don't know, I, I guess to me we're meant to read a lot into like tone and every aspect and so with the with the song kind of picking up and it zooming in on the journal it feels like it's being presented as, you know, something we're supposed to be like, yeah. Like he he Rorschach did it even in death he was able to you know, never compromise and get the truth out there. But then, you know, when you sit and think about the implications and that this whole peace, the the fact that peace has been achieved based on a lie will get out there like, oh, okay, yes, yeah, so World War Three is going to happen. Like, it's, it is a weird note to end on. And I feel like, I guess there's something I'm supposed to walk away thinking. I'm just not sure. Maybe I do know what that is and I'm just kind of misinterpreting it, but I don't know. I was just curious as to what, how you felt about like the the very ending scene and what we're supposed to take from it. Maybe it's something that's more a revelation of your own philosophy than the films. Where each person, depending on what you believe, whether you're a nihilist or a pragmatist or an idealist, each person can have their own yeah moment and feel like their worldview is upheld depending on their perspective on that scene. Hmm. It'd, be, it'd be interesting if that was the case. Um, and uh, I, I, that's about one final thing I just wanted to mention. I, I really liked uh, Tyler Bates' score for this. Um, outside of the soundtrack, just the, his original score, I thought, was very effective. Yeah, it, it really worked for the very moody and neo-noir feeling of the film it felt like it was kind of it walked hand in hand with the visuals yeah and the way it kind of shifted between you know just the the, the whole dread and horror of the world to like the kind of light-hearted fun of uh laurie like kind of discovering the archie um to you know this more uh um kind of symphonic uh orchestration at the, the end I want to say pretentious not pretentious I'm um, just kind of uh, this very just brash um, bold uh, orchestration and chorus at the end as all the pieces fall into place I thought he he uh, just kind of wove his way and and fit the story very well yeah definitely and I find it interesting that uh, the comic book films seem to be following the same trend that comic books did that resulted in in watchmen you know you they 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 kind of originated as propaganda during the war and then they're you know they're very black and white and you know the good guys the bad guys and then towards the 80s you, you got deconstructions of the genre like this and like you know dark knight rises and you know that kind of storyline that that Gave a much more grim and possibly multifaceted view of the genre, and it seems as if uh, comic books I and mean, comic book films did that. You know, we started out with you know the much more you know, like Raimi Spider Man and, and films like that in the early two thousands, and they can then with with uh, Nolan's the Dark Knight trilogy, I think you know the kind of cynicism at you know how the War on Terror was turning out and. Things like that kind of led into a, a, a 
push for a darker grim version and now it seems to be kind of we're on, uh, again on a, a reaction to that where we're trying with things like you know guardians of the galaxy and wonder woman trying to push back against that and give a much more idealized version again um it, it's kind of funny you know, how 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 the the uh, comic book films seem to be like a kind of microcosm of how the comic book industry evolves just a whole lot faster yeah it kind of makes me wonder I mean, there's always talk about, you know, comic book movie fatigue, but I don't really think we're seeing that in box office numbers as of yet. Um, do still pretty much make more than anything else if you're not Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. And so it makes me wonder, you know, if they stick around for like another 10 years, what what's it going to look like? Where Where is this trend going to go? And uh, how are these movies going to be looked at, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? Yeah. And I, I like, this film had the whole ad- adaptation thing that I think really pushed into people disliking it's, uh, it's, it when it first came out. But I think if the films like The Man of Steel had come out in, like, 2009, 2010, when that, when that type of film was kind of coming into shape, I think, you know, it would have been much better received. Um, but now, you know, n- now the put, I think is falling victim, not to any question of quality, but just cause that's not where we are as a, as a, you know, as a whole. And personally, I, I find value in all different kinds of uh, comic book films. And I think, you know, th- this, this type has its value. I love films like, you know, Wonder Woman. I love, uh, Ram- Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. I think, I think that that's what be- that's what's beautiful about the genre is you can tell these incredibly dark, thoughtful stories. You can tell the really fun, light stories, and they all work. Um, I think it's 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 very shallow to try and push it into one single mold, and and then that's what will lead to fatigue. I think films like this only serve its, its make to make it to give it greater longevity by giving us variety. Yeah, I, I mean, the more diverse of a of films we get every year of the genre, the less people, or yeah, the less people we're gonna get tired of them. Because I don't think anybody's gonna walk out of Guardians of the Galaxy and then say, "Oh no, I'm gonna skip out on a movie like Watchmen because I've already watched a movie similar." It's like, no, if I mean they can all be based on comic books and be quote unquote comic book movies, but the more willing we are to allow diversity and not allow trends to take too much of a shape the more we can continue to enjoy them. But we'll see. Well, all right. So uh, that was our review of Watchmen. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please go rate and review us on iTunes. And if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We are there as Underrated Podcast. And if you want to find our other episodes and reviews, you can go to underratedpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at underrated underscore pod. Um, so next week we have a guest scheduled and if all goes well Chris Reyes from the Story to Screen podcast will be joining us to talk about his pick Equilibrium um, but his schedule has been a little tricky so we might have to change it up and put something in the last minute uh, but that's the plan for now so until next week we will see you later see ya Spread my dreams under your feet. Try to-
it softly. Because you tread on my dreams. I assume you dream, Preston. I'll do what I can to see they go easy on you. We both know. They never go easy. Then I'm sorry. No, you're not. You don't even know the meaning. It's just a vestigial word for a feeling you've never felt. Don't you see, Preston? It's gone. Everything that makes us what we are traded away. There's no war. No murder. What is it you think we do? No. You've been with me. You've seen how it can be. The jealousy. The rage. A heavy cost. I pay it gladly. <laughs>